Welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. We're all the same in the air. We, you know, we get on with it. We fly planes. It's, you know, your flying training is very similar. But there is something fundamentally different in the way women relate to women and women relate to men and the conversations we have. From someone who's had confidence issues, to kind of get that far was a huge success for me. I really believe that unless you can see it, you can't be it. Extended, your aerospace radio station. Hello there, I'm Peter Johnson and welcome to the latest episode of Aerospace Radio Station Extended. Kerry Bennett has had an eventful career. She's a mother, pilot and an astronaut candidate. In the RAF, flying multiple aircraft types, she saw combat in both Afghanistan and Iraq, completing over 100 missions. As a STEM ambassador, she's visited over 100 schools and presented to over 20,000 children. Kerry, welcome to Extended. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Uh, we're, we're very honoured. We're very honoured. We know how um, important your time is, and um, but we've got lots to get through, lots to, to, to ask you about. But I want to kick off straight away by going to your website and asking you about your statement, the sky is not the limit, dream big, work hard, take risks. What does that mean to you? Yeah, well, this kind of came about when I decided to really stop limiting myself. It wasn't other people putting limits on me. It was really me kind of closing the door and not going for opportunities because I, I really didn't think I was good enough or I, I didn't, I was kind of a bit afraid of failure, really. And then I decided that actually I should be brave and go for these opportunities, that kind of dream big mantra. Um, you know, what, what would I do if I couldn't fail? What would I do if this, you know, the sky wasn't, you know, the limit, if, if the opportunities were endless? And that's kind of how I've been trying to live my life for the last few years is really grasping those opportunities, making the most of them and, and really going for it. So that's what the sky isn't the limit means to me. It means make the most of those opportunities. And then those kind of three other taglines, dream big, that, that really means just dream your big dreams, dream as big as you can. Um, work hard, obviously, that, that I think you get nowhere without putting in the hard work. There aren't yeah. uh, lucky people out there. There are people that have worked very, very hard and maybe been in the right place or the right time, but it all comes down to a lot of work as well as taking risks. I think that's probably one of the biggest ones. And that came from my father. He always, always said, take risks. And that's that kind of be brave mantra that you, if you stay in your comfort zone, and always do the same thing, then nothing will change. So yeah. that's that's really what those, those kind of lines mean to me. Okay, well, let's go back to the beginning then. Um, you mentioned your father there. Did you, did you mm. have a background or was there a family background in aviation? 
No, absolutely not. Gosh, it couldn't be further from that, really. So um, my father was initially a mechanic and then a roofer. My mum works in a garden centre. So really humble background with nobody in the military at all or in aviation. In fact, I didn't go on my first plane until I was 15 and then my second when I was 20. So, um, you know, we, we were a family that holidayed in Cornwall and Wales and it was wonderful, but I hadn't kind of seen the world or anything like that. So, um my inspiration came from I, w- I was the first person in my family to go to university in the traditional sense my my father had done the open university as a mature student uh, yeah. and when I was at university I met somebody who was a pilot and that's really kind of how it all started and how the dream became realized if you like wow okay so so talk me through those those early days in in aviation then um was that person a, a mentor an inspiration or how did you actually get to start flying? Yeah, so I was at university um, and I had heard of the University Air Squadron, which is what the Air Force run. And this person that I met was a a part of the University Air Squadron. They said, you know, flying, you get to see the world from above, you get a completely different perspective and somebody pays you for it. (laughs) I thought that couldn't be real. Like there couldn't be a better job than that. Um, I always used to get told off when I was a child at school for looking out of the window too much and some, you know, to be paid for looking out of the window. (laughs) It's like my dream job. Uh, but actually, I was really quite underconfident, and I didn't. I, I decided I would like to apply and like to apply for the Air Force, and I applied to the Navy. Um, but actually, I didn't tell very many people because, as I said earlier, I was quite afraid of failure and yeah. almost embarrassed to fail. I think I've been trying to be so perfect in my life that the fear of failure, you know, would let other people down, and that I would let myself down. So actually, I. I didn't really, I told my parents, but none of my friends. And then when I got into the Air Force and was selected, it actually became as a, quite a surprise to my friends um, because they didn't know. And it was a real shame because actually they could have supported me and I wish yeah. I had been braver and told them. Yeah. And uh, really showed my true self and been a bit more authentic rather than being too worried about what other people thought, if, if you like. Now, you missed out a, a, a little bit of detail in that. Um, you were accepted by the RAF. But when you were 16, you broke your back in three places. Um, How did that fit together, literally? Mm -hmm. So I think that kind of sums up the type of personality I was. I was always really keen to um, do anything that was involved adrenaline, so, you know, roller coasters. And I actually broke my back by jumping off a cliff into the sea, so cliff jumping. Um, Oh, dear. And it was the impact with the water that fractured three vertebrae. and you know what? I think all of these really tough and challenging times, they make us who we are and they contribute to our personality. So that happened to me age 16. And that's, do you know what? That's when I really realized that if I want to get fit and well again, because I was, that they said there was a small chance I might be paralyzed. Very luckily, it, it didn't come to that. But I still had a week in a hospital bed and then three months of rehabilitation and a body brace from my neck down to my waist. Yeah. Um, and the medic said to me, if you want to get better and you want to regain full fitness, it's down to you. Nobody else is going to move yourself for you. Mm. And that's when I realized I had to stand on my own two feet and really, you know, do things for myself rather than up until that point, I think I'd relied on my family and parents for everything. Um, and that really made me very motivated, self-motivated. And uh, and that kind of sums up the person I was. Yeah, all the adrenaline. And um, <laughs> during that phase when I, would, I, I wasn't able to go out and sometimes, you know, I wasn't able to be upright for very long. So I'd watch quite, quite a lot of TV. 
Yeah. Um, and I remember the Rocky films were on. They were on every Friday night on on the Channel 5, which was the new channel at the time. Uh, so I watched the Rocky films, and I really identified with that, that kind of fighter spirit. Yeah. I really took yeah. a lot from that. And I credit breaking my back with giving me that kind of mental toughness, really. Once you've gone through something and you have to be resilient and you have to have toughness, when you come out the other side, and you always do come out the other side, when you're out the other side, I think you're a stronger person. And yeah. that's really what happened to me and how I see it. Um, when somebody, when when one has an immobilizing incident, um, you recognize how fragile existence can be as well. You know, the simple things, just getting across a small space, crossing the road and things like that. And it makes you look at other challenges in life in a very different way. Yeah, no, absolutely agree. And I think this injury that that was, you know, so significant and had such an impact on me, that made me appreciate well a lot of things a lot more. Just my own independence, you know, I was 16, so just starting mm. to become independent and then I couldn't do anything. I couldn't go to the toilet on my own. You know, that kind of real, you know, I couldn't couldn't do anything, couldn't bathe yeah. myself. So I had to rely on other people a lot. And then as soon as I I managed to regain fitness and be able to do things for my myself. I, I did. I appreciated them a lot more. And it made me realize that there is a lot out there and we take it for granted. And I, I've got to try, you've got to number one, try and appreciate it. And number two, try and make the most of it. Yeah. But actually, if I'm very honest, age 16, I was really naive and I never thought, oh, I'll be like this forever. I always just, that dogged determination, that almost naivety, the blindness, I thought, oh, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. I'll, you know, yeah. I don't think yeah. it truly, the impact of it truly hit me as much as maybe it did my parents and they realized what I might be losing. I bet they were pleased you jumped off that cliff. <laughs> well, <laughs> I bet someone was in trouble. <laughs> well, it was actually my dad was there with me doing it. Oh, so, um, no. It tells you a lot, I really. bet dad was in trouble then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It goes hand in hand, I think. If you want your children to be brave and do these things, then sometimes you've got to show them that there are risks out there. And unfortunately, sometimes it doesn't work out. But you can't wrap your children. uh, You know, I've got two children now, and I can't wrap them in cotton wool. Just this evening, my son was jumping off a a, um, playground, you know, something that was about six foot high. And I thought, oh, please don't. And then I thought, you're a child. You know, jumping is all part. This is all part of it. And sometimes it goes wrong, and you've got to hope for the best. But you can't wrap them in cotton wool. No, understood. So um, you you were accepted into the RAF. What was the track that you were on within the RAF? Yeah, so initially I was accepted into the Air Force at age 21. Um, Initially, I didn't really have any idea of um, what aircraft I wanted to fly. I chose the Air Force because they had such a wide variety. Um, And as I progressed through the initial flying training, so the elementary flying training, flying the Grob Tutor, which was wonderful, um, a great group of friends that, you know, a great group of course mates that became friends, I should say, um, baby pilots, really. And that's when I decided I wanted to become a fast jet pilot, partly because we'd seen Top Gun and it sounded cool and and, um, partly because that, that seemed like the, the kind of more difficult and more prestigious route, if you like. That's yeah. that's how it was almost sold. Uh, and eventually, after f- flying um, for a few years in fast jet training, I got chopped at the end of my fast jet training and it didn't right. work out. But actually, I do really believe that everything is meant to be. So I enjoyed the fast jet training. I found some of it incredibly difficult. There were some days I was working so hard and I'm quite a diligent person working as hard as I could and I was just not even managing to be average 
So when that that part of my RAF flying training career came to an end, I tried to look at it as pragmatically as possible because there have been so many things that I'd enjoyed, but I think it just wasn't for me and it, um, yeah. and it wasn't right for me. And I was trying right. so hard to push myself into something that just wasn't meant to be. Yeah. And Kerry, if you don't mind me um, asking um, at that time, were you under a bit of pressure being one of the few female pilots at that time going through fast jet training was there pressure on you did you feel that you had that added pressure I really did feel the pressure actually and again that's probably my immaturity and it was self-induced pressure I'm not I don't think there was pressure externally but when I if I ever struggled during a flight and flying training you feel like the spotlight's on you anyway and for example at RAF Valley I was there was a while when I was the only female pilot there there were no female instructors. I didn't have a female instructor throughout my flying training. There, yeah. there are others. But I didn't have any. Um, and for for a, a while, I was the only female. So when you're already feeling on under the spotlight, and then there's the difference anyway, which probably no one else is noticing. It's just something that's within you. Yeah. I, it did add the pressure to me. I really felt like it added the pressure. Right. And I had a lot of good friends on my course and a lot of good people. But I think... I didn't have any female friends and that maybe made a difference as well because we're all the same in the air. We, you know, we get on with it. We fly planes. It's, you know, your flying training is very similar, but there is something fundamentally different in the way women relate to women, women relate to men and the conversations we have are different and you you can't change that as much as you would like to or as much as you try. So I think I did kind of miss out on having that other female relationship while I was going through my training and while the, the stakes were high and the pressure was really high. I mean, sometimes I would I would wake up in the morning and I'd feel the pressure so much that I'd think, oh, I, I just, I don't want to, when I'm opening the curtains, I don't want it to be a nice day because I really don't want to go flying today. And I'd hope for yeah. bad weather so I could have another day to prepare and revise. As I said, I was very sure. diligent. But I mean, I don't, after, after that period ended and the weight was almost taken off me I realized that that's not how you should be you should you know I look forward to flying now yeah and that phase when I was not looking forward to it it just you know you should have been alarm bells and things weren't quite right but you bounced right back I mean you it, it didn't really take you off the rails yes you weren't tracking should we say fast jets call them what you want fighter jets but you were still on track um to fly for the RAF um and you weren't banged out of the RAF. You just didn't make that course. So what, yeah. what next? So, well, as you said, it, it, didn't just, it just didn't quite happen and didn't work. And actually, about 50% of people that start the training don't make it yeah. through to the end. So it's, it's quite high. Course. Yeah. And I mean, the, it needs to be. The standards are incredibly high. The people that fly these jets are incredibly talented people. Yeah. Um, so, and, and the standards need to be high, and it costs a lot of money to train to train people to fly fast jets. So you can't give people endless hours because that's just money racking up. You need people to yeah. be able to assimilate the information quickly and then and then move on. So um, yeah, when I when I got chopped from fast jets, I spent probably a few hours feeling a bit sorry for myself, and then I decided, okay, and this is this has happened to me many times in life when things haven't gone quite right. I can't. I decided I can't change it now. This has happened. It's time to move on and look for the next thing and to throw myself mm-hmm. into it. So I, I never, I like, never like to be a victim, and I never I try. I try never to look back. Really, um, 
and amazingly you know being being that kind of person i threw myself into the next phase of it which was flying multi-engine aircraft and i absolutely loved it and one year one year to the day from being chopped i was flying daniel craig into afghanistan now i need to ask you now i need to ask you about that so 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 you moved into um did you go straight to fly the hawker or was that a track you went into or did you have to go for a multi-engine course first yeah, so I did a multi-engine crossover, a multi-mexo is what it's called, flying the King Air for a little yeah. while, um, 40 hours, I believe. And then I was selected to fly for the Royal Squadron. So wow. the RAF, that's, um, well, I kind of, some people describe it as um, Air Force One, but on a very smaller British scale, you know, flying yeah. Yeah. politicians, the royal family, um, anyone who of influence who is going to somewhere on official business, if you like. So um, I'm not going to ask you any personal details, although I do want to come back to James Bond. <laughs> James sure Bond's James Bond. Um, yeah. What sort of places do you get to fly into? I, I, I know you've flown what is now our king, of course, um, mm-hmm. uh, and other senior royals uh, and execs. What sort of places were you flying? Where, yeah. where were you flying? Mm-hmm worldwide really i mean we took the aircraft um over the pond so we took it as far as vancouver so on that side of the the states right. so we took it down to the south as far as cape town so you know we pretty long hops um, yeah i didn't realize it had such long legs well no it doesn't it takes a very long time about 1500 miles is the maximum it can go right, so it okay. takes about six days to get down to cape town and the same right. to go to be able to go to um Vancouver we had to go via Iceland and then Greenland okay. and then northern Canada and I mean these places that you get to go to and you take this aircraft to they're incredible you know Rankin Inlet and it which is a calorie and Nasasalak yeah. in Greenland it's you know you're, you're flying an approach and there's an iceberg next to you these are incredible places to be able to go to to be lucky yeah. enough to go to yeah 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 and mm-hmm. um how how long did you fly um the the you you describe it as a Hawker 700 yeah, that's right. Yeah, okay. HS one. It's called a HS one two five or a Hawker yeah. Hawker seven hundred. Okay, yeah. you got the thousand plus hours actually. Yeah, that. that's so that right. Must yeah, have been so quite I flew a fair time. Yeah, I flew it as a co-pilot initially, and then as a captain. So very lucky to be able to do both. Um, and in the air force, yeah. it's slightly different from commercial aviation. Um, captaincy comes well. We I had my captaincy there after three years. Um, and then could take the aircraft away and was was flying with quite inexperienced people and flying, you know, the prime minister and quite, you know, quite senior yeah. passengers. So that's, a, you know, the, the amount of pressure. A lot of responsibility. Actually, yeah, it really was, um, especially the thing that was quite a lot of responsibility, the aircraft as you taxied in, had to be lined up almost exactly with a red carpet that someone would have set out. Yeah. Uh, and then the photographs of people getting off the aircraft would be taken. So you would be very, very careful to make sure that that <laughs> aircraft lined up with that red carpet because you wouldn't want to ruin everyone's hard yeah. work. The, yeah. you know, sometimes there were dignitaries waiting and sometimes there was a band and people waiting to shake hands, all of that kind of thing. So if you'd over, overshot the mark by a meter or two, it would it would <laughs> definitely detract from the situation. Well, it's just not done, is it? It's just no, not done. No. It wouldn't be British to, to, no, to do that. Yeah. Did you know that in the late 1940s, During atomic weapons testing in the Pacific, the USA used Boeing B-17 flying fortresses as unmanned radio-controlled drones. Did you also know that in 1927, two RAF officers in a Hawker Horsley 
set a new distance record, flying from Britain to the Persian Gulf, only for it to be eclipsed just hours later by Charles Lindbergh's Solo Atlantic crossing, which was a mere 180 miles longer. If your answers to the above are yes, you're probably a regular reader of The Aviation Historian, the quarterly journal, print and digital, that explores the less well-trodden paths of flying history. If your answers are no, visit theaviationhistorian.com and see what you're missing. Kerry, I mean, given the erratic nature of flying those sorts of individuals, um, mm. how did that, what was the lifestyle like? Because, you know, I, I'm assuming it was busy and quite hectic at one moment and then probably a fair bit of downtime. Um, I'd say it was, there was, it was quite a pace most of the time, if I'm honest, because okay. there would be almost a hierarchy of who could use the aircraft. And if the people at the right. top didn't need it, then there w- it would c- keep going down. And obviously if the aircraft, we had seven aircraft at the time of, of that type and four uh, others uh, on the Royal Squadron and right. um, a couple of helicopters. So the fleet was fairly sizable at the time when I was on the squadron. Uh, and it was almost always being used. If it wasn't being used, it was in main- the aircraft were in maintenance. So yeah. there was a constant demand. I mean, the amount of the amount of um, time you can save, you know, for example, a politician that needs to go over to Paris for an hour meeting and then back, if you can yeah. save them time, then that's really valuable for them. So, yeah, uh, yeah we were used constantly, and the, the duties that we did were quite varied. So especially okay. during um, Afghanistan as well, we were used as a comms aircraft um, to – basically move people around that needed to be moved and moved things around so sometime you know one day we were moving this really important mail as a cargo aircraft because there was nobody else there to do it yeah um, the next day we were moving um the padre who was who had to go to a few bases um to 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 do their duties but there was you know no it was not very safe to make those moves between say Kandahar and Bastion and Kabul yeah it was you know much better to do it by our aircraft than a road route so that was our right. job and you know anything that that helped to the effort is what the aircraft would do when it, when we were in Afghanistan yeah right okay well let's let's stick with that because I think that continues um you then went on to heavier aircraft you traded up mm. Um, yes. And was that the A330, the Voyager next? Yeah, okay. that's right. So um, I had my daughter. So when the HS125 went out of service, um, some good timing on our part. We, I was pregnant and I had my daughter. And that was, um, if, had I not been pregnant and had maternity leave, I probably would have had a hold anyway while I was going between the right. two aircraft. So when I came back from my first lot of maternity leave, I learned how to fly the Airbus, the A330, an aircraft I absolutely loved flying. It was great. Right. Um, initially it, in the right hand seat as the co-pilot. Why, and- why do you say that, Kerry? Because um, it's just funny. And it, I spoke to another, um, well, she's an Airbus pilot, but she's got multi-license uh, accreditation to everything. But <laughs> she loved the A330. She absolutely loved it to fly. And she'd been flying since the mid late seventies and she's just retired, um, flying the A three thirty actually. But she loves mm-hmm. she loved the A three thirty and it I like it. It's a, it's a it's a nice aircraft. I like the A three fifty actually myself. But mm-hmm. there just seems to be something about it when I talk to pilots who've flown it, they just love it. Yeah. I I find it quite hard to put my finger on it. I'm not exactly sure why it is i just i I think i enjoyed 
multiple things. I enjoyed the role and the squadron, and I think I've I've enjoyed the role and you know on all the aircraft. But there's just something about it, um, especially the air to air refueling role we were flying it in. Yeah, it felt quite valuable and quite useful when you were doing that role. There were there were as you said earlier, there were periods of quieter times on that air, aircraft, and then there were periods of really high intensity, high paced, lots going on. And when you got the job right and you managed to refuel lots of different people in a really tight time frame and you had to prioritize people, people were running out of fuel. And we, um, especially over Iraq and Syria, we refueled many different nationalities yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Uh, when you got it right, it felt really good. And, we, and the aircraft was actually uh, – so I think it's because I came from the HS125, which is the same age as me, so it was kind of 30-plus years old, to this A330, which um, – was was a civilian aircraft and the air force you know hadn't modified too much so it yeah. felt like um quite a new aircraft to us so but it is, it is heavy nice. fly by wire and glass cockpit how was that transition yeah. for you well the hs125 was also glass cockpit but um it was a bit of a transition but actually i quite like the challenge of doing something different i th- i think changing up every so often not too yeah. not too regularly because it's nice to feel comfortable with what you're doing but changing up is actually quite useful because you acquire a new set of skills and your your brain keeps firing and doesn't get too comfortable i think if you fly the same thing for a long time you get you become in danger of yeah uh, of not being yeah not kind of make, making your brain work as hard if you like Right. Okay. So um, you were flying the A330 uh, when towards the back end of the 20s to teens, the 20 teens. How did Do You Have What It Takes come about? Oh, so the TV show. Yeah. So the BBC television program, um, Astronauts, Do You Have What It Takes? Well, I think I'd got to about 33, 34 years old. I I had my daughter and I... um, and I thought, you know what, I would, I love doing this job that I'm doing, flying the A330, but my real passion and something I'd really love to do is to be an astronaut. And that's something I wanted to do age five, you know, at five years old, everybody wants to be you know, a ballerina, a football player, an astronaut. Yeah. But this is something that had carried on throughout my whole life. But I think maybe because of how I was, you know, my background, how I was brought up, I always thought that's just one of those absolutely unachievable dreams. I will never be able to do it. Of course, you know, it sounds crazy. Um, But actually, when I got to about, you know, early 30s, I thought, well, if there is something like that I want to do, then I've got to start positioning myself and looking into it and actually giving it a proper shot. And then when, when it doesn't happen, at least I can say I've tried. And that's the space I was in. When I was doing some, you know, I always loved space um, and learning about, you know, our, the, the planets and yeah. solar system. So I was learning about things like that. And I saw this advert. And actually, at the time, I thought it was a quiz. So it said, um, astronauts, do you have what it takes? And I thought, oh, this would be a fun way to spend a couple of minutes. And yeah. actually, it was when I was feeding my daughter in the middle of the night. That's when I saw it. So I thought it was one <laughs> of Goodness things. me. Interesting. Yeah, so, um, Isn't it funny? I, <laughs> I know, the way things work. I clicked on it and um, I said, oh, there's a new BBC Two television program being created um, and it's about astronauts and astronaut selection. And at first I thought, oh, no, that's something I don't think I would do because my my fear of failure and the fear of looking mm. stupid and putting yourself out there, especially on TV, I was very nervous of what if I say something stupid or do something stupid. And 
I'm not really that much of a social media person. So the idea of people commenting on me, it, you felt very vulnerable, like yeah. opening yourself up. Yeah. Something I didn't think I would, I would really want. Um, but I, it stayed, that idea stayed in my head for a few days and went around and around and around in my head. And then I said to my husband, look, I've seen this thing. I'm, I'm kind of thinking about maybe I should apply. And he said to me, of course, do it. You know, that would be brilliant. You'd be great at it. Uh, and that was the push I needed. So I applied and I didn't think I would be selected, um, but I got selected to the 12 people that made it onto the TV show. Now, you were still in the REF at that time. Yeah, that's right. How did that go down with the hierarchy? Well, I I didn't actually ask permission initially. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Because I thought that I probably wouldn't get through anyway. So it was only when I was down to the final 50 people that I approached my boss and said, look, there's this television program. I'd really like to do it. I think it's going to be quite an educational, you know, it's not going to be a reality show. Um, and they said, no. I said, no, that's not really something we're, we, we think you're going to be able to do. And I thought, oh, wow. gosh, okay. <laughs> um, wow. But actually, I kind of pushed it a bit more and went to the media people and asked the um, BBC to give them a, a media sheet, if you like, of what kind of, a, you know, what kind yeah. of benefits could come out of it. Um, and I think that swayed them, the, uh, that swayed the Air Force to thinking this might be a benefit rather than a risk, if yeah. you like. Okay. Okay. Oh, so t- you, 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 you talked about diesel. You, you talked about getting down to the last, whatever it was, 50 or something then. What was that process yeah. about? How did you get to that point? So to be selected for the show, there was an initial telephone interview and then a submission of a CV. And then um, to be able to be selected for the show, they chose, I think, 200 people because the BBC wanted people that could actually, in theory, be real astronauts. So people that had a um, minimum of yeah. a master's or a PhD, people that were physically able, um, people that were in the right kind of um, areas of careers, so STEM careers, um, to be able to make it as realistic as possible. Even though it was a TV show for entertainment, they wanted to put people that might even, you know, that might apply so yeah. stage with 200 people was in BBC television center with um, the television cameras filming. So we were split into groups of six. And I, I remember I was with these incredible people. One of them was um, this lady who was a marine biologist and a, a professor. So she was you know, incredibly smart. And we were put together and we were asked to do challenges while these cameras filmed us. Um, and one of the challenges we did was we had some Ikea furniture and the six of us were asked to put the furniture together, but without any instructions. Oh, so, wow. Um, wow. Yeah, so the BBC wanted to see how we performed. There were yeah. a few cameras on us. Um, and some people kind of got very quiet. Some people got very over-animated and, you know, tried to be at the centre of attention. I guess they wanted someone in between. Um, so, yeah, that was one of the stages. And then another stage was um, – was kind of medical stages because they wanted to make sure psychologically as well. And this is a really, really great thing that they did. Um, they wanted to make sure that psychologically we were strong enough to be on a television program um, and all that comes with that. And I think it was lovely that the psychologist explained that what you see on television isn't necessarily your real self. It's almost a caricature of yourself. Yeah. So your highs will be on television and your lows will be there. So anytime you cry, you can guarantee that that will be shown on television. Uh, it, you know, the mundane stuff is probably the stuff that's going to go on the cutting room floor. 
Yeah. Uh, and you've got to be prepared that it might not look exactly like you. They didn't edit it and they didn't ask us to re-say lines. Everything was very much us, but obviously they, they took the the most TV-worthy yeah. drama and that kind of thing. Sure. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I remember it um, quite well and um, I found it quite a stressful watch on occasion um, really? you could feel you could because you can feel the tension you can feel the yeah. pressure uh, yeah. and individuals where they feel like they were struggling a bit um, mm-hmm. it really came across very well um, and I think they produced it quite in, in quite a balanced way actually I thought it was quite quite balanced um, but even though personally I would have an appetite to to want to be something like that um, I think that would be something in itself to get through those early stages. But then you really had the chance, apart from meeting Chris Hadfield, of course, (laughs) um, uh, apart from meeting Chris, um, potentially you could become an ESA astronaut from this. Um, Were you starting to put yourself psychologically into that place and starting to think about what that would mean to your life, to your way of living, and potentially the risks associated with it and that sort of thing. Given where you've come from, you'd, all those achievements, and yet you were putting yourself even further ahead again on another level of risk and challenge. Yeah, I think as the, te- as the television show went on, it became less fun and more, more serious, as you say. And there were lots and lots of um, tasks and tests. I think there were 40 in all. And one thing that I kind of had to do was just give myself over to the test. You can't be good at everything when they're testing you on 40 different things. Yeah. So that was actually a really lovely process to go through is that you just have to accept you are who you are and you can you just give give as good as you can and that is all you can do. That's enough. So that was one brilliant thing that came out of it for me is that there was no pre- – the thing is there was no preparation for any of the tests. We didn't know what was coming. We didn't get to find out – at all in advance we just go into a room and something would happen we walked into a room and they said you're, you're going to learn to fly a helicopter or you're going to take your own blood uh so that was a really good thing that you just had to accept it you know that acceptance of of almost yeah. acceptance of self because we didn't have time to have a look on our phones or you know we had didn't have any phones or any communication we didn't have any time to prepare which had always been such a big thing and such a big yeah. crutch that I'm, yeah. i had always prepared as much as i could um, so that was one really good thing. And then, as I said, as the show went on, so there were six episodes of the show and I got through to the final. So each week, two people would go home. So 12 and the final, there, yeah. were, there were three. Um, by the final, it was quite serious. And I was really thinking to myself, number one, I would love to be an astronaut. This has just cemented the fact in my brain that these, you know, these challenges, even though they're very hard, this is what I would love to do. Yeah. Um, and then number two, this is a really serious um, profession. It has implications. It's it's not just for me, but for my whole family. It's You have to be almost a bit selfish to want to do it because other people might not get the best of you. And that really came to the front when um, Chris Hadfield took us to Florida and we were standing at um, – at the launch pad at 39 Alpha at the Kennedy Space Center. We were standing on the runway and Chris Hadfield was telling us about Columbia and, you know, how uh, the implications of everything that happened there. Mm. And it just really hit home that this is a really dangerous industry, as aviation is, but space travel more more so. 
and that if you want to do it, then you have to make sure you realize the full implications that, yeah. you know, there are risks that you might not, you know, survive. Um, it's not a guarantee. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah, I really had to think about that. And um, how was your partner with with that positioning? Given that you've got a young family, you ha- had your daughter, now fortunately you have another child, but um, how, how does that fit in? I'm trying to think if I, you know, back in my younger days, if I was in that position, I would have found that quite a challenging place to be. Yeah, so I... I think that my, my partner is incredibly supportive. He flies Chinook helicopters. So, you know, his role in itself is quite a risky, dangerous one and right. lots of five tours of Afghanistan. So I think the way he approaches it is that there's no difference between him and I in terms of, you know, we're both parents. So yeah. if he's taking a risk or I'm taking a risk, you know, it's a parent taking a risk rather than the mother or the father, if you see what I mean. Yeah, and I understand. He wants, I think he wants me to, and the same as I want for him, wants to have no regrets. We want to be able to say we took those opportunities and we saw how far we could go rather than limit ourselves. And that's, I think that's really where he comes from and where I come from for him. So when there's an opportunity for him, I say, you know, go for it. We will make it work. We'll figure it out. If you get, if you get that opportunity that you really want to do, we'll, you know, we'll do it and we'll go for it. Wonderful. Now, before we leave the, the astronaut um, training, the Daily Mail described you as one of Britain's most accomplished and terrifying women um what the hell were they trying to get at i mean it's the daily mail so i have to cover <laughs> it i suppose a tiny bit but <laughs> what were they saying that women who are intelligent and successful are a worry to society that's why i got from that title mm. what, what what were they trying to write there it's, i don't i'd say intimidating to other people in I think when you see something like that on paper, somebody's achievements, anybody's achievements, really, if you were to write your highlights on paper, it sounds quite intimidating because you're almost taking it out of context. You don't see the number of times they've failed, the number of times they've tried. You almost see just the boast sheet. And that can be quite intimidating, just seeing people's highlights. Um, And I think only when you you see the real person and you see there have been ups and downs that it actually humanizes someone. Um, and then you can identify with them a lot more. Whereas just seeing a, a list on a paper of what somebody's done, that that, that dehumanizes them for me. So I'm, yeah. I'm not entirely sure what they meant by intimidating, but that's what, where I would go with it. <laughs> right. So you haven't given up on astronaut training, have you? No, no, no. So the TV program was wonderful. And as you said, it did come with them um, for the winner, who was this amazing girl called Susie. She's who's still friends now. She's fantastic. Um, for her, she got a recommendation to the European Space Agency. So that was absolutely wonderful for her. Um, she didn't, she hasn't become an astronaut yet, but I think she's, you know, as, as I, uh, we, the same as me, we both really like to be astronauts still. Um, yeah. So European Space Agency, the people who um, Tim Peake was part of, they last had their astronaut selection in 2008, which was when Tim Peake became an astronaut. And then they opened up their selection again in 2021. Right, And when they opened their selection, I was really excited, but also quite terrified because that meant that I could apply and I could see how far I could go. So um, as is my mantra, I thought I'm going to go for this. And I applied, me and 24,000 other people um, from all of Europe, everyone who had a minimum of master's. I mean, yeah. I think about 50% of people had more than one PhD. So a PhD and, an, and, you know, very, very smart, accomplished people. 
um, all passing at least a class two medical. So 24,000 people applied. Um, and I thought that was where it might end. And I was very, very pleased to get the call to say, you've passed the initial selection. Can you come to Hamburg with 1,500 others and do aptitude tests and screening for kind of spatial awareness and memory yeah. and hand-eye coordination? Uh, so that was the second stage, really, um, which was wonderful in itself, going to somewhere and being you know, being able to, to kind of show go and show off your skills and see how far you could go. But again, at that stage, I thought that might be the end, the end of the um, the journey, especially because there were maths and physics tests. Uh, so I had to kind of I'd started brushing up on my maths and G- maths and physics GCSE um, <laughs> work because you know the the areas and things of you know shapes yep. you know yep. something I do every day. So I had to really practice, and that was quite terrifying. Uh, but I was very very happy to find out that I'd got through that stage as well. So now I was in a pool of 400 that went for psychological assessments. Um, so my friends described it as the good lad test. You know, do you want to be in space with this person? Uh, right, the group okay. assessment, that kind of yeah. thing. Um, and luckily that all went very well as well. Uh, and then next came the medical. So, um, which was you know very fascinating to go through as well. But sadly, I got an email saying, you know, thank you so much for applying. We we were very happy to have you. Um, but at this stage, we're not going to proceed any further with um, with the selection for yourself. Um, please apply right. again in, in the next uh, the next round, whenever that may be. So I'd managed to make it, I believe, to the final 80. Wow. So wow. from someone who grew up where I did and from someone who's had confidence issues to kind of get that far – was a huge success for me. I, I had yeah. a bottle of champagne ready and, you know, drank champagne that night because I just thought that just goes to show how far you can go what if you, can you do. let yourself. Yeah, if you follow yeah. those dreams. I was yeah. over the moon with that and over the moon. And um, and <laughs> I'd love to, love to apply again. Right, okay. But in the meantime, you're still flying. Um, you fly for, for BA. Um, yeah. You first trained on the when, when you left the RAF um, to fly the 777. Then That's right. Of course, yeah. we had um, COVID and lockdown and yeah. all those challenges. Um, and now you're back on the, um, the Airbuses yes. again yeah. um, and flying for BA. Are you, are you enjoying that? Is that something that fits your lifestyle now well it does so yeah so the triple seven initially the beginning of 2020 i thought look here i go i'm joining british airways flying the triple seven this is going to be wonderful and then covid was around the corner which obviously affected so many people um so yeah unfortunately i was made redundant but again kind of my attitude to that was okay well i can't change it now so i'm just going to make the best of it and yeah. just you know, make the most of the time with my family i'm very lucky that Nobody was ill, I, you know, none of my family. So just make the most of that, you know, appreciate the things you have, not the, not the things you don't have. So that's yeah. really how I took it. And then now back to being on the Airbus, so the three, 19, 20 and 21. Uh, do you know what, to, to, to start a commercial operation on short haul, it was actually really hard work. You know, the pace of it was yeah. something that I had to get used to. Um, all of the new destinations. And I absolutely love it. I really do. I'm really enjoying it. But it took a, took a bit of getting used to um, just kind of all of the different inputs that you have, you know, from the passengers and the dispatchers and and the yeah. aircraft and the engineers. Yeah. You know, there's lots but to get ahead of. It's a different around. culture from where you've come from as well. It's a very different yeah. culture. 
Yeah, especially to, you know when we when I used to fly the um, the tankers, we used to round up our fuel to kind of the nearest five tons. And yeah. now on the Airbus, we're talking about fuel in hundreds of tons, and you know there's a real different. Uh, mm. You know, you have to be in a different headspace to make it work. Yeah. So um, now, I mean, amazing. Your your resilience is just um, amazing, and it's brought you through so many of those challenges. How the hell do you have time to visit the schools, to do the work that you do outside of your flying? to mm. to to be a family person and i'm i'm sure your partner's career is quite challenging sometimes given um given what he does um how are you balancing it all yeah it takes work for sure and it's a juggle and we really have to prioritize so i am in no doubt that the the you know family is the number one so i make every effort to do everything I can with them. And, you know, I don't want to be missing out on sports days. And and if that means that I miss out on, on some personal time or I miss out on maybe seeing a friend of mine or something, then I think that's worth yeah. it. So it's kind of prioritizing. And then whenever my children are at school and, you know, I, I'm, I'm at home, that's when I'll try and put, fit in visits to other schools because I think that's so important. I really believe that unless you can see it, you can't be it. So for young people, if they see people in aviation – and that's why I, I try as much as I can when people are leaving the the aircraft, you know, to say hello, to say thank you, to say goodbye. And I love it if there are people that want to come and yeah. have a look at the flight deck, especially, you know, children and a little girl the other day said, I want to be a pilot like you. And that was, you know, really fantastic. Oh, that's great. That's fabulous. That engagement that can actually, there's that one, one, you know, word or one conversation can spark something. And I think it's yeah. so important. Uh, so, yeah, I try as hard as I can to... Um, Especially, you know, females in aviation, I'm really passionate about that and to try and open doors for other females. Um, so I, I kind of, if people were to contact me, I'm more than happy to mentor and to try and help people. And I've done that. And um, somebody okay. I helped recently has just got into Ryanair. So that's, you know, wonderful. Wow, wonderful. So, yeah, as a cadetship. Wonderful. So, um, now, two very quick questions before I, I let you go. The first is, um, where does GT come from? <laughs> so my um my surname was double barreled when I was younger and um those are those are the initials of my surname. So that's okay. yeah, that's where it comes from. So did and that follow you through the RAF? Yeah, so in the Air Force your... anyone that's got a double barreled name usually becomes the two letters of their their two initials. Okay. So that's that's what it happened. Um because when you're shouting names across, you know, across uh fields or whatever, pe- you know, people like to shorten it as much as possible. Yeah, and the other thing I can't let you go uh, before we is just your office. You've got some great squadron prints <laughs> yeah. up yeah. there. Uh, are they the aircraft that you've flown in? Yeah, so I've got three more on this side, but that's the King Air, the Hawk on, um, from 19 Squadron, um, so fight, uh, Tactics and Weapons Squadron, uh, and the HS-125, and then the Takano. So, wow. yeah, wow. really great aircraft there. And then just before we, we sign off, Kerry, where can we find you um, online? Where can people find you if they want to follow you? Yeah, if anybody wants to follow me or advice or kind of mentoring, then I guess LinkedIn is a really good place to find me. Um, as I said, sometimes social media, I think, can be a quite a difficult field to be in. So I'm I'm not too out there, really, um, because... 
I, I quite like the way my life is, the balance I've got. Yeah. And I feel like there isn't actually that much more of me to go around, you know, to, to put myself <laughs> out there more on social media would mean I've got to take it away from somewhere else. Sure. So I've got quite a nice balance. So, yeah, LinkedIn is a really great way way to find All me. All right. We'll, we'll put links to, the, to that and also to your website mm-hmm. um, yeah. in the show notes. But for now, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed it. Yeah, you're more than welcome. Thank you. So that's it. We'd like to thank White Hearts as well as the wider extended family of supporters, including, of course, Mick Oakey at the Aviation Historian and Simon Jakubowski at the Aviation Enthusiasts Book Club. We're asking for two minutes of your time to give us a review on your podcast player. Really helps us grow the podcast after we lost so many subscribers last year due to a technical issue at Apple Podcasts. You can find me at Nascot Hornet on Twitter and you can find Tim, Gareth and Ellie on the extended Twitter, Facebook and Instagram feeds. That's it with the arrival of the music. It's goodbye from Kerry. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me, Peter Johnson. Remember, stay tuned to this frequency. That is, of course, Aerospace Radio Station Extended. legal policy and use of our material can be found on our website please do ask before using anything you hear the programs produced with a creative commons license please leave us a review wherever you play your podcast it genuinely helps grow our program and broaden its reach you can also review the program And leave us feedback on our Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to email us, our email address is getinvolved at aviationextended.co.uk. And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. From across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you... The Royal Aeronautical Society is the world's only professional body dedicated to the entire aerospace community. Established in 1866 to further the art, science and engineering of aeronautics, the Society has remained at the forefront of developments in aerospace. Visit www.aerosociety.com Extend it! This is XTP Media.